Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your spirit is here with us to illuminate your word to us, to open our eyes, to see wondrous things in your law. Pray that you would, by your word, instruct us and teach us, help us, help this time of meditation on your word. Contribute greatly to our happiness in you, as it is intended to do. Make us happy in yourself as we think on your many great promises, on your commands and your law of liberty, and on the wonderful things that you have done for us and will do for us in the future, especially as we see those things accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever praised. Amen. So, for the last two weeks, we have been talking about God, and we've been looking at some things that are rather paradigm-shifting in our way of thinking about God. Uh, first, we talked about God as an emotional God. He's a God who has, who experiences connection with his people at a very deep level. He has a rich and abundant inner life. It's not to say that God is like us, that he's, he's not like the uh, ancient Greek deities who were just fickle and blown around and everybody just imagined that the gods must be like them, must be these fickle beings that, you know, love one minute, hate the next, and have no reason for doing so. Our God is not like that. He's steady and stable, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have a rich emotional life. That's what we talked about first. Then second, we spent last week just all, talking all about how God is a happy God. Now that you know, when I first thought of that idea, it was mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting. I don't tend to think of God as a happy God. I, we, we, have, and we have emphasized His anger very much, and, and rightly so in some respects. God hates sin. God is angry uh, that people will embrace lies and things that will destroy themselves instead of Him, the source of life and all happiness. Jeremiah chapter 2 characterizes sin in this way. It says, sin at its essence, God says, my people have committed two sins. They committed a lot of sins. You know, think about Israel in the Old Testament. They committed a lot of sins. But he says, there's only two. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug for themselves cisterns that can't hold water. So instead of this fountain of living water, this clean, clear, and in the ancient world, think too about how clean, clear, a clean, clear source of water, a source of clean water, meant that a village of people could thrive there, meant that life could spring up there, that you could have family and you could have all the good things in life because you've got this fountain of living water right there. And he says, that's what I am. And that's what I want to be for my people. But instead of drinking from me, they go around digging holes in the ground and letting the rain fill them with muddy, filthy, mosquito-infested pools of water. And they go and they turn and they scoop it up and they drink. And what does that kind of... Anybody uh, ever been camping and had to... You were going to die of thirst, you know, and you had to drink some water that was questionable. What happens? when you drink that questionable water. And he's saying this water isn't questionable. This is, you know, water that's next to like a horse stall or something. 
that you're making for yourself, what happens? Does it agree with your system? You get sick. Who, who knows? Like, we all played Oregon Trail. Who didn't play Oregon Trail? You die of dysentery. That's what happens when you drink dirty water. And so dirty water is death. The living water is life. And God is saying the essence of sin, the essence of all your misery, is that you want to drink this filthy water. You want to go to sources for life that are ultimately going to kill you instead of coming to me, the fountain of life and joy. So he is that, and he can't be that for us unless he is himself a happy God, which Paul says very clearly in 1 Timothy 1.11 and 6.15 that he is the happy God. So I'm glad that we've had a couple of weeks for those truths to kind of sink in, three weeks to be precise. There was another week in there that we had walked through the Bible. Because now I want to get into how does God impart that happy life of His to us? What does that look like in our lives? Where does happiness in our lives come from? So every sort of moral philosophy in the history of the world has asked this question. It's all centered around this one question. What is the good life? What is the life? What will make me happy? Happiness is the goal of all ethics and moral philosophy that we know in the world. What's going to make you happy? What's going to give you a sense of wholeness in your life? Like everything is going well. I have all my needs met and I'm, up and I'm absolutely satisfied. Different philosophers have given different answers throughout the year, throughout the years, centuries. But the Bible in Psalm 1 gives, the, gives its definitive answer, gives God's definitive answer for where you'll find happiness. So we're going to look at that, Psalm 1. We looked at the first verse, <laughs> and then I used that as a jumping-off point last week to talk about the happiness of God and that He's the source of that happiness. We're going to dive into the rest of the passage this morning. So Psalm 1, this definitive answer, it starts this way. And I'm going to... I'm going to retranslate uh, the first word there as we talked about last week. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. So the first thing we see here is what, not what makes one happy, but the opposite of what makes one happy. He says, happy is the man who does not. He starts with a negative. So he starts by telling us about these three killjoys, these three things that will destroy your happiness, these three groups of people who will try to convince you that they know where to find happiness. 
they know where you should look. And he talks about not just the groups, but how they'll try to convince you. This is a sort of progressive. Do you notice the progression here? Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So these, there's it's three phases. First, you're walking along in the counsel of the wicked, in wicked counsel. Uh, and then there's a stopping. You stop and you stand in the sinner's way. And then you sit in the seat of mockers. So you're walking, you, you decide to stop and stand, you're, you're giving a good ear to this counsel, it convinces you to stop, to listen, to identify with this group because you think their counsel is good, and then you're sitting there so long and the good counsel just seems so good that you sit down and you join them. And then you mock everything else. I can't believe anybody thinks they would find happiness anywhere but here. This is the happiest place there is. And that's kind of this progression into that the sinful culture, our, our culture infiltrated by sin that rises up out of the sort of amalgamated sim nature of all humanity is trying to convince us that we need to stop. Hey, hey, just listen and stop and have a seat and become like us. So it goes through our thinking, these killjoys, these things that try to steal our happiness, convince us that happiness lies somewhere else. They start with our thinking. It moves to our behavior, and then it moves to our belonging. Thinking, behaving, belonging is the progression. So the first thing is this thinking. You're accepting the advice of the wicked. At first, the person uh, is the person determined to be miserable is merely influenced by a world in rebellion against God. It's just, it starts as just influence. Our misery, our move away from the happiness of God, starts by just influence of the world. Uh, they offer happiness in the places where they can't be found. And this may be something like TV shows <laughs> that convince you to laugh at sin, to laugh at things that God finds despicable. To you, It's subtle. You don't even realize you're doing it. You don't even realize that that's subtly shifting the attitude of your heart that you're, you're laughing at sin, and not just laughing at it. But what that does is it starts to normalize sinful behaviors in our lives. You start to see them as normal. It's not a big deal. I think about like Will and Grace in the 90s before any of you were born. The 90s, right? Early 2000s? I don't know. I don't remember. I have a bad scale of time. More saying that I'm ancient than you're young. Uh, not ancient yet. So, the, you know, one of the express purposes of Will and Grace, this, episode, this TV show in the, in the early 2000s or 90s, I didn't look it up on IMDb, um, one of the express purposes that the writers and producers said they wanted to do was to make homosexuality seem normal. You're going to write 
a gay character as the lead and you're going to make him look just like a heterosexual character and the only difference is that he's homosexual. He has relationships with men. That's going to be the only difference. And we're going to, you know, uh, the flamboyantly gay character is going to be really likable. He's going to be the funny guy. And we're going to make homosexuality attractive, not just uh, accepted, but attractive. And so that was the strategy. We're going to counsel people with our wicked counsels. We're going to seek in and subtly tell people that all this is okay. And you're going to laugh. Oh, you're going to have a good time. You know, they, they didn't have anything that was explicitly, like, uh, um, overtly sexual, things like that, even though the whole show was about homosexuality, because they didn't want to turn away the, the audience of the righteous. Their whole purpose was to draw in the people who might be willing to listen for a little while, learn to laugh at sin, learn to take it as a normal thing, and then the, the agenda could go on from there. And that's exactly what it's done, right? I spoke with a man this week who's uh, part of a church plant uh, out of a church that has fallen apart, a large church that's, that's, that's collapsed and is collapsing because they're ordaining homosexual ministers. And there's this mass exodus of people who have finally seen, oh, we've, abound, we've abandoned these denominations, this one particular denomination, abandoned the counsels of the Lord, abandoned the instruction of the Lord long ago. They made this little trajectory change, and lots of people jumped ship then, like the PCA, the OPC, when these churches made this little trajectory change and said, we're not going to treat God's Word as authoritative. People were like, oh, we're getting off this ship. This is crashing. This is going to fly into the sun. You know, if, if you're launching a rocket and trying to get to Mars, your trajectory has to be very specific. If you're off by one degree here, that may not matter. You, can, you won't even be able to tell if you're off by that much. But extrapolate that out 100,000 miles, and now you're flying into the sun instead of to Mars. Now you're flying on a path into the void, into destruction, instead of your destination. And so, but that all began, that big change, these big changes in our culture, these big shifts in the normalizing of what before uh, even the most rebellious, crazy sinner would have thought was nuts. <laughs> even the person who hates God would have thought that, these things, that many of the things that are going on today are crazy. And why do we think that's normal? And why does our culture say if you stand against these things, then you are a hateful bigot? Because They've slowly and gradually convinced people by giving these wicked counsels. People have listened to them, stopped, and then become mockers, become part of it so that they mock and tear down anybody who wants to stand up for the truth. So it's subtle, and that's the first thing that happens. I mean... And it's not just through media. There may be ungodly men or women that you look up to. Maybe somebody you work with is, is not a Christian, and you look up to them, and maybe rightly so. Maybe they're a really outstanding in your field that you work in. And you, ought to, and you ought to look up to them, get advice from them, have them mentor you with regard to your work. But if that person does not believe, if they're not a Christian, you've got to draw the line someplace. 
You got to say, this person can mentor me and teach me programming. This person can mentor me and teach me the law. This person can mentor me and teach me how to be a good doctor, but he's not going to teach me how to be a good person. He's not going to teach me how to be righteous. He's not going to teach me how to flourish like this tree planted by streams of water because he's not, because he's chaff in the end unless he is brought to the Lord. He can't teach you to be what he is not. And if you listen to those, the counsels, that, that life advice that somebody who's not a believer gives, then, and not just the vocational advice, which also that can be, you got to sift all that too. But it's going to suddenly draw you away from the Lord. You, won't even, you don't even really see it happening. Uh, Another big way that this happens is what we listen to. Uh, podcasts <laughs> are one of the most powerful voices for the wicked counsels of the world in our world today. I listen to podcasts all the time. I love them. I like This American Life. I like the story podcast. I like NPR podcasts of the, you know, where they do stories and things like that. I enjoy uh, all of that. but I have to approach it differently than you approach someone teaching the Word, teaching the Scriptures. Even that you have to weigh by your knowledge of the Scriptures themselves. There's a lot of, there are many uh, ravenous wolves um, dressed up as sheep. But what we listen to, not just podcasts, long-form thing, books we read, but also the music that we listen to. The music that we listen to gets you singing along Bebopping to, that, that's the oldest term ever. <laughs> Bebopping. You, you go to the sock hop, and that is just deplorable. The, the message in a lot of music music is a powerful thing, it gets behind what C.S. Lewis called the sleeping dragons. See, in your mind, there are these, you have defenses that should go up against the influences of the world. Paul talks about it and he says, you need to take captive every thought that stands against the honor of Christ. Take them captive and make them obedient. Our job as Christians, one thing we're doing is we're tearing down strongholds of lies and deception in the world. And so he, needs, he says, you need to be on guard. You need to have these, and this is what C.S. Lewis called, you need to have these dragons that guard but your dragons fall asleep. Your guards fall asleep. And different avenues, they fall, music itself kind of lulls them to sleep. Oh, this is, this is good because music is part of God's good creation. It's one of the highest forms of God's good creation. This, we have an entire book of the Bible, the biggest one in our entire Bible, that's dedicated to songs. It's dedicated to music. And so music is a powerful thing. God recognizes the power of it. And so does the enemy. He can't <laughs> uh, create it out of, out of ex nihilo, out of nothing. But he can take God's good gift and corrupt it in such a way that it sneaks past those hidden dragons, those sleeping dragons, and gets down into the depths of you. And that message then sinks down, those wicked counsels sink down deep. I'm spending a lot more time than I'm spent on, on the wicked counsel piece than on the other two because this is the most subtle. This is, you're, if you're ever sitting there and you're just miserable and you're wondering why, 
Stop and think. What is, ask yourself, what's, what music have I been listening to? What shows have I been watching? What movies have I, have I been watching? They've all promised to make me happy. But I'm, I'm just miserable. And I think, for me, more times than not, what I have found is that I am not listening to, I'm not ingesting the things of God. And instead, I'm listening to the counsels of the wicked. And hopefully, you can kind of, by looking at your happiness and trying to drive, looking at your happiness, letting that emotion speak to you, letting your emotion of, of misery, of sadness speak to you and give you a, a, uh, a communication is one of the things that all of our emotions do. Sadness is meant to communicate that something isn't wrong, you're, something isn't right, you're losing something of value. And it can be really just a subtle sense of sadness. I think a lot of lingering depression is, looks like this, those gray days, because we're not letting the light of God's Word brighten those gray days and break through the clouds. It may not happen immediately. I'm not, I am not saying just read your Bible and you'll be happy. I am not saying if you sit down and read this, if you're sad and you come to this text, you will immediately just feel the most rapturous joy in the world. But I am saying that if you meditate on it day and night, if you make it your delight, so that when you have opportunity to uh, listen to the counsels of the world by watching this show and you go, well, I haven't meditated on God's Word today. I haven't spent any time meditating on God's Word. You, it's not a hard choice. You don't feel like you're choosing between duty and delight. You're not setting them in opposition to one another. You're going, oh, no, I want to do the thing that I delight to do. I want to spend time in the Word because I walk away at least feeling a sense of life and calm and, uh, and all of that. So that, the, those are the negative things. The first negative thing is we accept advice from the world. We listen and let them influence our thinking. The second way that uh, we move along into conformity to this evil age, to this corrupt culture, is that uh, we become party to its ways. And you can see how the progression works, right? You start in your brain, you start being convinced that this is where happiness lies, this is what's gonna make me happy, and then what you're gonna do is you're gonna start acting on that. You're gonna listen to things that tell you it's going to make me happy to look at pornography. It's going to make me happy to engage in sexual morality. It's going to make me happy to cheat on my taxes. It's going to make me happy to uh, be unjust in the way that I work. It's going to make, these things are going to make me happy. And if you think they're going to make you happy, you're going to stop. You're going to stop moving and you're going to stand and you're going to begin to uh, behave in the same way that the sinners behave. The world's lifestyle becomes your lifestyle. Their habits become your habits. Their attitudes become your attitudes. How many of your habits, if, if you didn't come to church on a Sunday, and if I didn't know you were a believer, would the habits of your life be reflective? Would they show that you actually are a believer, that you actually believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Would, if an unbeliever looked at your life, would he see it as any different? If not, 
you might be standing in the way of sinners. So that's the second thing. Change of attitude, change of habits. And then finally, what happens is that we settle down and we start to mock the fools who think they can find happiness in God. I don't know how much anybody is following sort of this giant move in the church right now called deconstruction. I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm taking it apart and I'm rethinking it. And all these people, all these people who are being unchristianed, they describe what's happening to them as a deconversion, something moving from faith to unbelief. It always begins with the subtle influence. I had a friend who was a homosexual and I couldn't bring myself to condemn their sin. So I started rethinking. I started rethinking God's word and reconsidering and convincing myself that certain passages that are very clear about this particular sin weren't clear at all. Oh, they're actually quite muddy. They muddy the waters, make it feel okay. Then they go one step further and they start living the life of the sinner. I know of uh, pastors who have left their wives. I know of uh, female teacher, Bible teachers who have come out as lesbians. I, you, know, you start living the life. They've settled in. Then what happens is generally they reject Christianity altogether wholesale and then go, what fools believe this stuff? This is all the stuff of oppression. Thus, the Bible is a tool of oppression given to destroy uh, women and it's hateful and it's destructive. They become mockers. And what a mocker does, it may not seem like a mocker, somebody mocking something, somebody being really cynical, somebody saying there's no uh, sincere joy to be found in God. It may seem like maybe that's not the most grievous of sins. But I'll tell you this, it's the farthest from repentance. This is the hardened heart, the wickedness, associated with mocking is also attributed to Pharaoh when his heart is hardened in the face of all the miracles, in the face of everything that Moses does in Egypt, everything that Yahweh rains fire down on them. Yahweh, give, Yahweh brings darkness and plague, flies, pestilence, and makes it clear, draws a clear distinction, says, hey, check out Goshen, where my people live. There's not a, you, you, you don't need bug spray in Goshen. There's no mosquitoes there. There's no flies there. You don't have to worry about the frogs. You don't have to worry about the boils. You need, you need, low, you need some uh, you know, balm everywhere else in Egypt except for Goshen. And then you would think that you would start to see this division that God is making between His chosen people and those who have hardened their hearts and, and are destined for destruction. And you would think that they would look in and go, oh, we really should repent. We really should turn. This God is real. But the hardness of the human heart and the deceptiveness of the human heart is far deeper, far worse than we ever could imagine. Who can know it, Jeremiah says. So, a mocker, somebody bitter who looks at life uh, in a bitter, sneering, disparaging attitude toward everything, it's a horrible place to be because you're the farthest from repentance, because you won't listen to counsel. You've moved 
from what there are three classes. There are three classes of fools in the book of Proverbs. One's called the open guy. Literally, that's my literal translation. The open-minded. Well, that's actually a, a worse insult in Hebrew. It means your head is open so stuff falls out of it. <laughs> the open or the open-hearted, you know, we would translate it as mind. The place where you think is so open that it's like a sieve and everything just leaks out. It can't hold anything. But the, the open, without the heart attached, um, are, are what you would call somebody who's naive. Somebody who's young. They're a fool because they make mistakes that you wouldn't make if you had a little more life experience. And the Bible doesn't, the Proverbs doesn't outright condemn those people. But then you move to, uh, those, those people kind of can go one of two ways. They can either learn wisdom and become wise, become prudent, or they can harden themselves in their foolishness and become uh, nabals is the Hebrew word, nabal. And I like that because... Uh, David meets a man named Nabal, right? Do we know this story? David meets a fellow named Nabal, and you're supposed to laugh at that. When he meets a man called Stubborn Fool, like, <laughs> and, or Obstinate. He meets a man named Blockhead. Those are good translations of that. And the man, Blockhead, says, uh, David's been protecting his flocks, taking care of him, and David's just saying, okay, hey, look, my men, my army, we've been protecting your people. Uh, you know, we've spilled our blood to protect you. It's sheep shearing time. It's time for the festival. We just want an invite to the party, my man. And Nabal, blockhead, says, no way. This is my stuff. You can't have any of it. I didn't ask you for your protection. And so David, when the word gets back to him, he says, all right, fellas, strap on your swords. Let's go show this blockhead a thing or two. Now, that was a very dumb thing for David to do, and he gets revealed that by Abigail, blockhead's wife. How he married this wise woman, I'll never know. Uh, arranged marriage, I'm assuming. Because she seems way too wise, way too smart to be married to blockhead. So she comes out before David with all the things, all the festival food that she's lifted and says, hey, just take this. Listen, my husband Nabal, He's an idiot. He says, she says, you can't talk to him. That's literally, you can't talk to him. He doesn't listen. I tried to convince him that he probably should uh, honor the war chief who's been protecting his flocks for the last year, <laughs> who is known for killing tens of thousands and is, uh, is very powerful and has a, basically a mighty army. I told this guy that he should probably honor you, but he, he can't, you can't talk to him. That's becoming a fool. And then a step beyond that is the scoffer, is the mocker. The mocker is even dumber, more foolish than Nabal the blockhead. He, because not only will he not listen, but he's a missionary of foolishness. He's a missionary of wickedness. He goes around tearing down every good thing in order to make, in order to make proselytes of scofferism. And that's what happens when you sit down with them and become cynical. It steals your joy, steals your happiness. These people cannot be happy. So what can make us happy? 
These three things, our thinking, our behavior, and our belonging, instead of being shaped by the world, the, by the counsel of the wicked, the lifestyle of sinners, and the, uh, the, added, the mocking attitude of mockers, the cynicism, instead of letting it shape those things, instead of letting those things shape us, we need to let God's Word shape us. And how do we do that? We meditate. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in Yahweh's instruction. I, I, Torah is better translated than law, translated instruction. The idea is that Yahweh is trying to explain to you, uh, James calls it the perfect law of liberty. Here's God trying to tell you how to be free. How do you live as free people? How do you drive as a free driver on the road? Is it not having any laws or rules or anything whatsoever? Is that how you experience the freedom of the open road? No rules. Nope, that's how you die in a ditch. Like that, you need rules, you need laws, you need speed limits, you need stop signs. These things are good. They give you the freedom to be able to live. And God's law, His instruction is that, but not just for the road, for all of life. And so he says, you're, that needs to be your delight. So, such that you meditate on it, you chew on it day and night. This word meditate is the word, it's used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible to talk about a lion growling over its prey. I don't know if you've ever seen these nature videos. I like them sometimes. But you see a lion catch a zebra and he sits there and goes, mm -hmm. And, and is just as he's chewing and masticating on, the, on his prey because he's captured what he was hunting and he's delighting in it. Now, do you think that lion, that lion is happy. Most of the time they're real hungry and when they catch something, the joy is overf overflowing from them. He's happy to be chewing on this thing and his growl lets you know that he's happy. And then, but what else does his growl do? It lets the other lions know that he's not finished eating yet. The king lion, you know, the, the Simba, the Mufasa of the, of the tribe, he's, he gets to eat all that he wants first, and then everybody else gets to eat. And his growling, his low grumble, lets everybody know to stay back. I'm not done. <laughs> lets everybody know that, uh, that he is defensive of this treat that he has. And I think there's something of that in meditation too. What you're trying to say is, I'm going to guard this time. I'm going to protect this time. I'm going to pr protect and guard the integrity of this word in my mind and in my life and in my attitudes by chewing on it, eating it, digesting it, letting it settle into every... What happens when you eat something? Does it just go right through the same as... <laughs> no, you digest it. It's transformed into yourself. It becomes part of you. Your body takes it in and it becomes a part of you. And that's what God's Word is supposed to do when you chew on it, eat on it, day and night. So, what is this? He brings up this metaphor. This man, this happy man who meditates on God's Word is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What could be more opposite than a well-planted, well-watered tree and chaff? Chaff, 
for the non-farmers among us, I can see maybe a couple, uh, is um, when you harvest grain, you ever seen the big grain harvesters, the tractors that pull the big grain harvesters behind them? What's flying off? What is always just flying in the air around those big grain harvesters? Just all this dust and stuff that's blowing away. That's chaff. It's all the stuff that, uh, it's all the part of the wheat that you can't eat, that has no nutritional value, because, and it's worthless. It's dried up by the time you're harvesting and just needs to be carried away by the wind so that you can use what's there. And the psalmist says that the wicked are like that. They have no roots in them, and they'll just blow away on the wind. Every wind will just blow them away. Proverbs says that the way of the wicked is like deep darkness, growing ever darker so that they don't even know what they're stumbling over. But the way of the righteous is like the light of a new day, dawning and getting brighter and brighter until noon. Rationality, light and darkness are often a, a, a motif of rationality and their thinking ability in the Bible. And so the path of the wicked makes you less and less rational until you don't even know what rationality is anymore. But the path, the way of the righteous makes you wiser and wiser. It makes the world starts to make more and more sense until it's until you can see where you need to do decisions you need to make like it's noonday. And this person is like a tree. <laughs> Planted. One thing I want us to notice about this tree is that it's planted. It's planted. What that means is, it, you really transplanted would be a good translation. Uh, what's pictured here is not a forest glade. I used to picture this for the longest time. Oh, meditating on the Word of God will make me, will make my life like this, you know, untouched forest glade where there's this nice river flowing through, and I'm a tree that's never seen you know, that's completely separated from the world and I'm growing by putting my roots down in God's word. That's not what's happening here. What's, what's being evoked is the Garden of Eden. Now, the Garden of Eden was a planted and planned structure, wasn't it? Who was the gardener? Who planted the garden in Eden? Was it Adam? No, God planted the garden. And he's saying, I will plant you. What, how did he take Adam? Was Adam born? Was he created in Eden? Was he created in the garden? No. He was created outside the garden, and God took him and put him in the garden. And so he's saying, the man who is like this tree of life is somebody who has been taken out of the world and put into God's garden where there are well-watered, the, the real translation of this, streams of water sounds great, but really the, the idea is irrigation canals, something that has been intentionally dug to support the life of this tree. And he sinks his roots down into it. Now, those are metaphors for God's Word and His Spirit working in us to give us life by applying, God applying His Word by His Spirit. God's Word and Spirit always go together, never apart, to bring life. In the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the waters. God spoke. Stuff happened. Word, Spirit go together. They go together to give us life. And they can do that because of this. We talked last week a little bit about how Jesus is happy. And I'll give me five minutes. 
<laughs> if you're good. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about how Jesus is happy, but He's also the man of sorrows, right? He's happy because He was involved in creation. He's depicted as wisdom who rejoiced and frolicked and laughed and had fun creating beside God, beside the Father. And He rejoices because He is winning His people back to Himself. And He is happy. The joy set before Him is what led Him go to the cross. It's what motivated Him to suffer for our sakes. To take on our grief and misery. To become chaff, subject to the judgment of God, so that we could be transplanted out of the world and placed into the new garden, into His presence forever, where we feed on His life. There's this line at the end, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This word knows is the word for intimate knowing. He has experienced the way of the righteous. He has Now where does God get experience of the way of a righteous human being? In the person of Jesus. He experiences the life of a perfectly righteous human being because the happy man who walks, it makes it very clear in the original that the happy man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor, sits in, nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, this happy man has never done these things. To be truly happy, you must to have never listened to wicked counsel. You must to have never, not once, stopped and listened to the siren song as you walked by and said, ooh, that sounds appealing. Never. And you must never have once, have especially not sat down and mocked God. Now that's bad news for all of us, right? I've listened to the counsel of the wicked. I have stood in the, in, the, in the way of sinners. And I have sat in the seat of mockers. But Jesus Christ never did. So he earned the happiness of Psalm 1. But then what did he do? Psalm 53 says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted, no, he knew grief. Same, same idea, acquainted with grief. Now, where did he become acquainted with grief? He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God and therefore have access, access to this happiness because we have his record. You have the record. Do you believe in Jesus Christ right now? Then you have a record that gives you access to this happiness. You have it. It is yours. The streams of living water are yours. You have access to it through Jesus Christ. Because He earned it for you. So, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Get intimately acquainted with the way of Yahweh, the way of the Lord, through His Word. Meditate on His Word. Make it a part of your life. You're struggling with sins. You're struggling with misery. You're struggling with sorrow. Fill every corner of your life with God's Word. Post it on your mirror. Put it on your doorposts. 
Put it everywhere around your house. That's the idea in Deuteronomy 6. Post it everywhere. Put it, you know, uh, I'm not allowed to technically recommend tattoos, but write it on your arm. You know, with the... Uh, Put it where it's inescapable before your eyes. Go to the places where you're most tempted to listen to the advice of the wicked. Put a little post-it on your TV that says, happy is the man who doesn't listen to the advice of the wicked. If your TV is leading you astray, cut it off. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if your podcast, if your phone, if we, unsubscribe from the things that lead you astray. Don't li- you know, you can just not listen to that music anymore. You can just choose not to. It's lying to you, telling it'll make you happy and you'll be miserable without it. If you're miserable, if you're sad, fill the corners of your life with God's Word and let His Spirit do the work of feeding you and applying it and bringing His Word like a tree. A a tree is not just a channel through which water flows, just like we're not a channel through which food flows. It brings the water, it brings the nutrients and the minerals up into itself and it transforms it into what? fruit. And Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now that doesn't, doesn't that sound like a happy life to have those things in abundance? Well, you're not going to have them unless you're tapped into the water of God's Word through His, and His Spirit. Thanks. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your Word. I thank you that uh, that you have transplanted us out of the world into your garden, and your garden is still in the midst of the world. Jesus, you said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that they would not be of the world. And I pray that you would make us oases of the Garden of Eden to the people in our lives, that you would make us fruitful trees uh, that people are drawn to because of the delight and the joy that we have in spite of a disastrous world in which we live. And may that draw people in. May they be drawn to our hope so that they have to ask. They have to ask. There has to be some reason for this. There has to be some reason. I've never seen anybody like this before. How are you so happy? You've got cancer. You've got this. You've got all these things going on. How are you happy? I've never seen this before. Marvel people with the joy that you give us. Marvel us. Surprise us with the joy unbidden that that we can't understand Peter says. He says, if we stay with you, if we're connected to you intimately, then we won't even understand. We'll we'll be joyful and we'll we'll, we'll marvel and be amazed at ourselves that we would be happy about, that we would be happy in the midst of the trials that you bring us through. And I pray that you would do that because you would fix our hope on the end, that we would walk the path that you know, the path of life, and that we've avoid, we're not going to perish because we're in you and we walk in your way. Drive these truths deep down into our hearts to give us so that our joy might be in you. Cause us to abide in your love, Lord Jesus, so that our joy might be in you and your joy might be in us and our joy might be overflowing to one another. I pray these things, Lord Jesus, through your name, who together with the Holy Spirit, you are the one God, forever praised, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, One God forever praised. Amen.